and welcome to Literary Work in Progress, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. My name is Caitlin, and my favorite fictional couple is definitely Elizabeth and Mr. Darcy. I'm Kristen, and my favorite fictional couple is Anne and Gilbert. I'm Cameron, and my favorite fictional couple has to be Raynor and Kerrigan from StarCraft II. Oh. Yeah, no one's going to get that. Okay. <laughs> and I'm Erin, and my favorite fictional couple is Anne Elliot and Catherine Wentworth from Persuasion. Oh. We're all, like, classy. Yeah, here. we're going classy. Cameron, you missed the memo. <laughs> yeah. Classic with, you know, some crowds, right? <laughs> this week we have special guest Erin Beatty. She wrote The Traitor's Kiss, which came out this year. Tell us about yourself and your book, Erin. Okay, so I'm a Navy veteran, and I have an engineering and weapons background, but now I'm just a Navy wife, and I stay home with our five kids. My book, The Traitor's Kiss, it's a young adult fantasy about a girl named Sage who is completely unsuited for marriage, but she gets hired on as a matchmaker's apprentice. And then she and her boss are headed to a national marriage conference with a bunch of selected brides, and she gets romantically entangled with one of the soldiers and their ceremonial escort. But she's lying about who she is, and he's lying about who he is. And in the middle of all of this, they uncover a plot that's going to put the whole kingdom in a civil war. But it's complicated. It's <laughs> definitely complicated. <laughs> I've also read your book. It's pretty great. Yeah, I had you? so much fun with it. I had fun writing it most of the time. Isn't that how <laughs> writing always is? <laughs> it was mostly fun. I feel like your book has something for everyone. There's romance, and there's fighting, and there's magic, and spies. Awesome. And there's like microbiology and chemistry. Yeah, and that's true. So make sure to check out The Traitor's Kiss. It is awesome and well worth your time. So this week, if you did not notice, based on our introductions, we were talking about romantic subplots and also just how to develop convincing relationships, not just romantic relationships in fiction, but the ways we approach and the way other authors we know <laughs> approach developing convincing relationships. What I really want to talk about is earning it, earning friendships and romantic relationships instead of forcing characters' heads together, because I feel like you see a lot of that, especially in YA. Yeah, not that we're going to get mean about anything specific, but I feel like there's a lot of insta-love accusations that get thrown around. And I feel like that's something that can very easily be fixed and it makes the rest of your book way better anyway. So I guess a question then is what are some of the easy ways to fix it? Well, let's talk about some of the, some relationships that we've really liked. I really love Kaz and Inej and Six of Crows by Leigh Bardugo mm -hmm. because they're just, they have like these great obstacles and these great developments and they're not shallow characters, I guess is what it comes down to. I, I think that really is the key, at least the relationships that I think are the most real, like some of the ones you named, like Kaz and Inej, they're people that exist in a context other than their relation to each other. Mm -hmm. And that plays a lot into how they behave around each other. And I think that is honestly the key to making relationships in fiction feel more like relationships in life. Because, I mean, Nobody no two people are, are an island. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> I mean, maybe it feels like it a bit when, like, you're first starting out a relationship, but it's not a good or healthy or interesting place to be for anyone that's not you. <laughs> so would you say that in general it's a good idea to consider the question, why these two? And if the answer is because they're both pretty, that you probably need to keep thinking. <laughs> or because they're both in my book. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly, exactly. So it's, it's, it's of, all, of all assuming, assuming that there are more than two people in the story, you know, of all the people in the world that these people interact with, why is it these two that are getting closer? They have to be good on their own. They have to be awesome by themselves. And then, so then you can automatically see that together, they're just like even better than, I don't want to say better than they could be by themselves, but at the same time. They they have to jelly. they yeah. have they have to exist in their own right before you can see why they would work well with someone else right I feel yeah. like the reader needs to want them to get together before they even want to get together yes 
Yes. <laughs> I talk about this series all the time because it's my favorite, but in Chaos Walking by Patrick Ness. I love him. Okay, it's a trilogy. Two main characters are super into each other. You know from like the instant that they meet that like it's they have to be a thing, but nothing happens until like the very end of the third book. Spoiler alert, I did not feel like that tension go down like the whole time. And I was okay with waiting that long because of the way that it played off and how much I loved Viola as her own person and how interesting Todd's point of view was and how they just kind of work together. So I think I'm a big proponent for having, I don't know, characters that you want to root for, just especially when you want to root for them being together. Like Anne and Gilbert and Anna Green Cables, in the movies at least, it takes like seven hours of watching for them to admit that they love each other. <laughs> and I sit through all seven hours every time. So like, <laughs> it's it's a lot about letting your audience see how good they could be for each other and holding back on that. Holding back on the... the- the doing part of it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is more than just about romance, right? This is about group dynamics and friendships and family. I, I mean, regardless of what the relationship is between two characters, you have to have your audience believing in it. And, I mean, this is a miracle because instead of me bringing up the Raven Boys this time, Caitlin <laughs> brought it up, and that makes me very happy. So <laughs> do you want to talk about that? The Raven Boys is such a great book. Maggie Seafodder, if you don't read her books, you need to. Please. they're so awesome. So you have four boys that all go to the same school. And one of the reasons that their group dynamic is so cool is that they all very much have their own personalities. They're very solid, real characters with their own set of motives and their own part in this little dynamic circle that they have. And they all kind of gravitate toward Gansey, who's like their ringleader, sort of. But they all very much have their own character arc going on. And then you throw Blue into the mix, who's a girl, if you don't know that from her name and haven't read the book, And it's really interesting to see how all of the boys react to her because it's not clear-cut. Like, one of my favorite things about this book is her and Gansey. Like, their very first interaction is him saying, I'll pay you to talk to my friend because he likes you, and her saying, I'm not a prostitute. Like, it's just great that they're all very real people who have, like, real thoughts and feelings (laughs) about the world and have things they need to overcome because Gansey has a thing about money. He doesn't understand that other people don't have it and he shouldn't throw it around and use it on people. And she has a chip on her shoulder about all that stuff. She does. And so does Adam, one of the other boys. And it's oh, I really, love. I know Adam's great. The way they interact is very real. And so I'm not feeling like anybody's pushing anyone together because I really believe those characters are friends with each other and support each other and love each other. Well, and I think it's all informed by context mm-hmm. because we know that, like, Adam is coming from a poor family, an abusive situation. It totally affects how he's looking <laughs> at the world. Gansey's rich. Blue comes from a family of psychics. All of this really plays into the way that they react with each other. And I think that's something that just needs to be considered in kind of any situation where you have more than one character in a room is they're all going to have their own individual contexts. Well, I think if you go into it thinking that for every character, they're like the hero of their own story that they're their own main character, then their personality and their history will just kind of bleed out onto the page anyway. And then you have real friendships and real relationships, and it's it's easier if you think them that way. I think it's also easier if, in the context of romance, they start out as friends. Just for me or as a enemies. reader. Or, you know, as <laughs> enemies, but you have to at some point reach, like, a we're friendly with each other stage where... There's never a jump straight from enemies to we're kissing each other. So it happens well, all the time. Well, then yeah. <laughs> what I'm saying is I don't usually believe it when that happens. Okay, but yeah, that's a little bit more like that. There's usually, like, an accord of some kind that's struck. Before. Yeah, but as a personal 
private preference. I think that it's really believable when you can see that these two people would want to spend time with each other outside of kissing. Those relationships tend to be more believably healthy as well, I think. (laughs) This is a thought that's come to my mind, which I'm only just now thinking, so feel free to completely shoot it down if this doesn't make any sense. Would it be maybe fair to say that a lot of relationships start out with the people looking at the other person and seeing this person can do something for me, and this is how the relationship's going to start, but it develops when they start saying, what can I do for them? Yes. That sounds, yeah. <laughs> that sounds very That was a huge part in, in my book where she, Sage goes through this whole part where she like has this realization. It's like that everybody wanted something from her, but he started wanting things for her. And that just changed her entire perspective and messed her up. It messed her up. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> it put her in a little bit of a crisis, but, <laughs> but that's really interesting tension. And I think, I think there's something in that, just that I feel like things aren't necessarily more interesting when people start valuing other people before themselves, but it definitely adds an extra stake in there because you're worried not just about the main character, but you're worried about the other person too. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's not necessarily tension-free either because just let's say so you want, so, so character A wants to do something for character B. That doesn't mean character B wants it done by A. That's true. <laughs> so it's not necessarily it's, – it, it's, it doesn't have to have less tension. It's just a way to show an evolution of – their their maturation in in the relationship. I think we're definitely talking about this in terms of romantic subplots and not straight up romance. Mm. I do feel like you still need all of these elements because romance isn't any fun if you're reading about characters that aren't real people, probably. I'm not a huge reader of romance. I do read lots of books with romantic subplots in them, though, and write books that have romantic subplots. I watched Jane the Virgin. Does that count? (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, like, we're talking a lot about end goals but I guess the question is how do we accomplish these things because yeah we want the characters to feel real and to have real interactions with each other but on a more technical or mechanical scale what do we actually have to do to make that happen do you have any thoughts about how you did that with your book see I was surprised when people started calling it a romance because I thought I wrote this adventure book with some kissing in it and then they sent me to the romantic times convention and I was like oh I guess I did write a romance (laughs) (laughs) to be fair you do have the word kiss in the title and I didn't choose the title so (laughs) all right also fair I just didn't want it to take over. I just wanted it to add tension because their whole world is imploding and they all might die, but it makes it even worse when you actually care about one person more than anybody else. And it makes it even worse if that person is not really in as much danger as everyone else either. It changes your priorities in a whole lot of ways and just adds a whole level of tension because love complicates everything. So mm-hmm. just throw it in there. Kristen, you were talking about Firefly? Yeah, I was. Mm-hmm. So that's not a book, but no, it's a TV show. But I, I think a lot of the elements of storytelling that we're talking about here hold really true in that because not only is it a gang of misfits who become each other's family, but there's also a pre-established married couple on the ship, Zoe and Wash. And I think their relationship is probably one of like the most healthy, enjoyable things to watch because there's not really this angst about will they, won't they. It's just them working together as a team and like. There's a little bit of angst in there eventually because in like one episode, Wash feels really jealous because his wife and his captain have been super tight for forever. But it, in the end, it's resolved in a way that is really satisfying and... Hilarious too. Yeah, really funny. <laughs> and I think the thing is with even relationships that have already like been in place at the start of a novel that you really need to put in the effort to show that these people love each other and that they're willing to like do stuff for each other so that I as a reader can be interested and engaged and really believe that these people 
could be together if they were real. I think one thing I really like about the Raven Boys, especially, is that we see the characters not only only focusing on each other, like with the boys, they all talk about all sorts of stuff other than Blue, the girl. Oh, all and the time. every time that we have Blue, she's not only thinking about boys. We have lots of really healthy interactions between them where they are doing other stuff, where you can see their relationship and their trust building and, like, the fact that they want to build trust with each other because they do things together. Like, the whole point of that book is that he's looking for this... Dead Welsh dead, king. Yeah, a dead Welsh king. And there's this great scene where they all go see her mother, who's a, Blue's mother, who's a psychic. And each one of them has a really different fortune read, I suppose. And a different reaction to that fortune. Really different reaction. And, like, Blue's reaction watching it is way different. And it's really cool just to see all of the different characters and how they support each other and how... They like each other, and it has nothing to do with that. It's it's about character. It's like those doubling up on details where we're both yeah. developing the character and developing the relationships and also developing the story all at once. That's like a really important thing to live by is when you're writing to make sure your details do more than just one thing. Mm-hmm. And it's especially true when you're trying to have character growth, especially in the context of relationships. Mm-hmm. I feel like that's something that I struggle with in romance books, <coughs> not like with reading them, because I feel like there are lots of scenes solely dedicated to I'm developing my relationship with this other character rather than the plot and like everything else that's going on. It's this one, we're stepping out of the story for a moment and we're going to kiss and then we're going to step back into the story. And I have a hard time with that. I think it works for some novels more than others, just because some are a lot, they lean a lot more heavy on the romance part. Yeah. And that's, Definitely, but, yeah. My own preferences yeah. are definitely coloring. This. But but there are times where I will agree where the romance comes across as something that is supposed to be a subplot, and then to further it, it just becomes kind of strange and strained as well. So do we want the um the whole the Bechdel test or whatever? It's it's kind of and it's kind of related in that where if you don't want the romance to take over it, not every scene has to have a romantic element in it. I think if your book can can survive without the romance, then you don't. Then it's a subplot. But if it's but if it adds to it greatly, then you know it obviously belongs there. Mm-hmm. That's a really but good point. But if it can without it, then it's not. Then it's not the whole thing. How does having multiple points of view, especially if they're your two main characters who are who are falling in love with each other, how does that affect what you're writing? So I guess my thought about this becomes really obvious in multiple point of view writing, but it should be prevalent in all aspects of writing. For one of my editing classes, we had to read a book by Sol Stein, and he talks about how anytime characters are interacting, they're reading from different scripts, which basically means that like every interaction, every character has a different want, a different desire for an outcome, and a different subtext going into it. And when these different scripts kind of clash with each other, it adds a lot to tension. And this is something that comes across really, really well in multiple points Mm -hmm. of views because you can show all that subtext rather than making your reader just kind of guess at it. But the scene that I'm thinking of is actually from the, the winner's crime, I think, one of the books in that trilogy. But the two main characters are both point of view characters and they're in love with each other on the opposite sides of this war and Aaron the boy has finally decided to like declare his love for Kestrel and he is not going to take no for an answer he doesn't care about the consequences and so he's about to like barge in and make his love known and Kestrel knows that her dad who totally does not support this and will make a lot of bad things happen including death 
when he finds out is actually listening in on the conversation. And so from Kestrel's point of view, you can see that everything she's doing makes perfect sense because she's trying to make it so her dad doesn't know what's going on. And from Aaron's point of view, it just seems like Kestrel is being this massive evil jerk. And so these different scripts really contribute to the way that we build drama, that we build tension, and even the way that we resolve it. Because when one character says the right thing, you know exactly why it's the right thing. Or when they say the wrong thing, you know just how wrong it is. I think that holds true with, we've talked about the Raven Boys a whole lot. <laughs> we know from the very like first chapter almost of the Raven Boys that Blue has this connection to Gansey because she sees his dead ghost, which mm-hmm. means he's going to die within a year, walk through. And we know that it's either because she killed him or because she falls in love with him. And kisses him. And kisses him, yeah. And so, well, and the only reason she can see him is because of one of those two things. Yeah. And so even though the entire book, there's no romance between the two of them, it's like hanging over you because she knows about it and he doesn't. Mm -hmm. And she's also kind of romantically involved with Adam, so. Awkward. Did you want to add anything? You have multiple POVs in yours. You do, and it plays a big role in your book. It sure does. I have a lot. I have several scenes where when you read them the first time you think you know what's happened but then once you know what's really going on kind of at the end and if you go back and read it the whole the conversations take on like entirely different meanings and that those were really fun to write because they you know they dance around a lot of things but make it sound all natural but then also you know they've got these whole motivations quite important you know you think you know what they are but then beneath it it's like oh holy crap yeah So we kind of wanted to talk about how to create tension, like on the specifically romance stuff. I took a class from Caitlin McFarland a while ago that talks about this. And she says that your characters have to notice each other, not like in a big muscles, that guy has a cute smile sort of way, but in a like a real sort of way, the way you actually notice people, the way they talk, mannerisms, how close they are to you whether they have that breath, but they also like whether they're smart and whether you connect with them in the conversations and stuff. They have to notice and then they have to react and have an actual described either physical or mental reaction to what's going on and their proximity to this new person or old person or young person who is new to them. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Just whoever this person is, you got to notice them. And then after building those moments, you you continue to have moments like that where you have someone (laughs) noticing something and then reacting to it and having those things build. So like the first time you might notice somebody meeting eyes with you and the second time you might notice somebody touching your hand or somebody putting their arm around you or something like that. And you build and then you interrupt what's going to happen so you can't ever have like a full cycle where things actually pan out until you're ready for payoff. Also a careful balance because if you just keep missing, just missing, eventually people are going to get annoyed. tired of it. So. Yeah, that's true. You have to have some payoff. Though Patrick Ness manages that really well. But he does have, he has some pretty big emotional payoff. Like yeah. maybe Viola and Todd aren't kissing, but Todd is like literally using the power of love to defeat the enemy. So <laughs> that's true. Like, like the fact that he uses like Viola's name as a weapon is a mm-hmm. huge deal. Yeah. So like you get you get some payoff even if it's not the payoff you're expecting, and I think that keeps it engaging. Yeah, and it varies by genre. Like I'm guessing romance are a little bit more focused on like the physical. We want them to kiss stuff, whereas in something like Patrick Ness's book, the focus is a whole lot more on like people bombing each other and torture, oh, and, and also like starting a planetary war. Yeah. <laughs> like, and so I think whatever fits with your plot, you, you gauge what those 
moments of noticing and like what the payoffs are going to be. Yeah. It really worked for Patrick Ness because that's the context of the story. Whereas if you have something that's more romantically focused, it would be really annoying if they didn't kiss, at least at the end. That's true. That's probably why they did that to the Keira Knightley Pride and Prejudice. Well, or like Pushing Daisies. I know that's a really old, old show, but like Pie Maker couldn't kiss his true love or else she'd die again. And so mm. I guess they're... They have some pretty creative ways of getting around the fact that they can't touch each other. And it's really interesting to watch and engage with. Jealousy can be a fun thing because like when you, you may not think of someone romantically, but then you see them with somebody else or dancing with them or holding their hand and all of a sudden they're like, I wish, I wish that could be me. I mean, and that's, that's cool. That's that moment when you realize that you really actually do want to be with this person, but you don't want it to be turned into like some possessive thing and, and get creepy and whatnot. And I, I said, you want to be like Romeo and be like, oh, I, but that I wore a glove on that hand. Not, I wish every bone in that hand touching your face were crushed. <laughs> <laughs> they say a lot of different things about your characters. I think it's really hard to watch someone else be jealous because it's an automatically negative thing. Like even if you also are not unhappy or not happy with this other character engaging with somebody else, I don't feel like it's very fun to read about somebody being angsty and jealous. And so it's hard. Maybe that's just me. I'm like, son and rose. You know, I feel happy. It might. I don't know. Maybe, but you can, but you can turn it around and make it like a lower level jealousy. So if there was like a secret romance going on and you see, the person that you love talking with somebody else and you're like, I wish that I could talk to them freely in a public place, just like that. And then you've got that jealousy, but it's not. Yeah. 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 I, I know. I think maybe part of it has to do with what the jealousy motivates them to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, so on the one hand, I mean, I definitely agree if it's like, Oh, he's with her. I hate him. And that jealousy drives them to brooding and angst. That's not very sympathetic comparatively. Maybe it's, Maybe that jealousy drives them to do something self-improvement or to, to do something that's going to get attention or whatever. The one is at least more sympathetic than the other. I'm, I'm getting looks from Kristen. No, I'm just thinking about, so everything you're describing about a brooding, jealous love interest is basically Gail from The Hunger Games. <laughs> and you know, I still like him. So I think... But he doesn't like think mean things about PETA. I mean, if he does, he's not a POV character, so we don't get to hear them all along with him. Well, I mean, I'm recalling specifically there's one conversation where they're very civilly talking to each it's other. True. About it's true. It's true. What's going on? Mm-hmm. So that, that's so again, that's I, I don't get the impression that Gail's ever. I would crush his neck if I could. You know. Oh, yeah. well, not, and also he exists outside of that relationship, and it's right. not he's just off building bombs. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's not just like that relationship is not the core center of his existence, and so he might be annoyed about it, but it's not like his. <laughs> I might argue how effectively that's portrayed, but I agree it's better than it could be. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, if if you're not going to take a, a romance that like finally ends at the end of the trilogy, like the like the story you were talking about, I like the idea of an arc. There are three miniature arcs within the trilogy, and the first one is where there's the struggle of them to get together, to realize that they're meant to be together and that they do love each other. And then the second one is going to be when. Things get complicated because everyone's got baggage and more issues are coming up, more monsters to fight, whatever. And they so they're struggling to stay together. And then the third one, by the end of the second book, they come back together. And then in the third book, they're fighting together against that outside force. So they've become that team. And But it doesn't mean that there's everything's daisies. I mean, and that's one of the reasons that I think friendship is really important at the basis of a romance is because... You can't be romantic all the time. There has to be some sort of respect and give and take that can add to the plot just in general other than the, oh, this is really cute. Mm. <laughs> oh, and there is something else I wanted to talk about. The barriers that you put between your characters to keep them apart 
I feel like those are really important because they can't be arbitrary and silly or a plot device. They have to be real things that the characters have to actually sacrifice or to work to overcome. That could be cleared up by simply having a conversation. Yeah. Yeah, those are the worst. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, it happens a lot in fiction. And Mm -hmm. I, on the one hand, I get that like you're trying to establish tension and sometimes the reasons people don't don't communicate with each other. But on the other hand, I don't get it at all. Mm -hmm. So... Okay, so we are way over time. So let's move on to the second portion of our podcast where we critique a submission. Just a quick review of how we critique. We'll start out with things that we felt were really positive, that we felt like the author did well. And then the second portion of the critique, we will talk about things that might need a second look. We're going to try not to be prescriptive, identify areas we feel like the author might need to just take another look at rather than trying to rewrite things. A short summary, this is about a girl who is new in college and she's trying to figure out what she wants to write for her creative writing class. She has a big project coming up and she has an interesting roommate and kind of a love interest guy going on. She sounds like she's trying to sort out her life. And she's got massive stage fright. And a beautiful voice, it sounds like. So things that I liked, I feel like we had a good manipulative friend set up or perhaps like a really good growth set up. I'm not really sure which one it is. Her friend, and there's a really good contrast between the two of them. We have a really outgoing, excited about life, really trendy friend who may possibly be using her. We're not sure yet. And I really liked the line about staging concerts until she discovered stage fright. That's something she used to love, and then it changed. I, I liked this moment. So Grace wakes up really late. She's running a class. She gets to class, and she only realizes that she's wearing two different shoes and her jacket inside out because somebody else in class notices it and I felt like that does a really good job of showing just how distracted Grace is because I imagine at some point like if you were not completely flustered you would have noticed and so I think it was a good way to show us some emotional state as well as show the relationship between these two characters. Mm -hmm. I thought that friendship too had a lot of potential that it could go really well or it could go really bad and kind of that not knowing which way it could go. All right. So I felt like the submission started in an odd place. Nothing really happens until she gets to that class or when she decides to write the song. For, she decides to write a song for her creative writing project. Got to agree with that. Also, starting a submission with people waking up is something people roll their eyes about. Kind of like having characters the discover their, what they like, tell you what they look like by looking in a mirror. Mm-hmm. It's the same. I thought the story kind of really began when she noted the cute moment when she realized how she was dressed. But I mean, if you'd started there, you could have totally imagined how her morning was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and then it's kind of it lets the reader picture their their own self trying in a situation that bad, and then it actually makes it a little more personal. I think. Let's say. In, in general, I think there was a lot of telling. Mm-hmm. I think this is an exaggeration, but in a lot of places it felt like for every line of action, there was a paragraph of telling description. Mm-hmm. And especially in the beginning of a book, I, I don't think that that ratio is sustainable. Yeah. Like we said, that moment where she discovers her shoes are wrong and her sweater is inside out. That's a really great show. Is. Mm-hmm. But I feel like she had already told us all of that information. That so it's redundant. Yeah. And, and the show was great, so... So prescriptive is keep the show. Yeah. <laughs> I, I kind of felt like there were very little stakes throughout this whole thing because... So we have this problem that she needs to write a song, and within this chapter, she writes the song. And I'm not sure where this is going to go after this. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I wasn't really worried that she was going to write the song. I'm not necessarily worried about anything right now. And so I feel like I need a reason to be engaged in this, and I need 
some of those promises of where this book is going to go because I just I can't tell. This might be a genre thing, and that ju this just isn't the kind of genre that I prefer to read. But on the one hand, props for coming up with a conflict that's extremely relatable. Minus the singing, I've been exactly where she is. On the other hand, it's, it's relatable in the same way kind of that breathing is. It doesn't feel like it's a unique special connection. It's the kind of, it's kind of, this could, she, could, in other words, what's going, there's nothing about what's going on here that really feels like stands her out as a character. Everything we know about her could be describing lots of people and, and, the, and including the conflict that's going on. So what I want to know is out of all the people who have stage fright and want to sing, and out of all the people who are having problems deciding what they want to do for their, their semester project, why do I care about this one? I felt like I was a lot more connected to her roommate than I was to the main character. Well, that's because Ashley was really voicey. It was actually kind of exhausting to read her stuff because she just, it's paragraphs of her switching from topic to topic, which feels like a lot of people I know. And comparatively, Ashley stands out because of that. I have a kind of silly one, and that's just that. As someone who reads many, many queries and partial manuscripts, when a love interest is introduced as smirking at his first action, I personally get a little just like tired just because <laughs> so many manuscripts have smirking love interests and mm -hmm. people tend to rely really heavily on that verb. Yeah. What would you, no, never mind. I, I have no <laughs> I idea. I was about to ask you to be prescriptive. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what came over me. I actually feel like the introduction of the love interest was a little bit wonky for me because we'd already heard about him in like a navel gazy portion of this and then we hear about him from the roommate afterwards and I feel like both of those are better introductions to him than the actual introduction to him when he's there in the mm -hmm. book. I always look to look at the structure and the mechanics and there were a lot of really long sentences even in the dialogue so I mean, make sure if you're doing dialogue they're also saying and out loud because it, your brain can trip up over things. It didn't feel like there was much variety it, so the pace of everything didn't change even in the areas of urgency the sentences were all kind of the same length so it didn't create didn't allow you to read faster or feel like you were reading faster. She had a few paragraphs where several sentences began with the same word and some of them several times in a row. And sometimes you actually want to do that for an emphasis or an effect, but that is a, I see that a lot from agents. You're like, all the sentences are structured the same way. Um, it just, there's no variety in it. So and that's a huge difference between the polished professional writing and then your drafting writing. I, I do that in drafts and I have to go back to my own. It's all sound the same. So, so grill in the phone booth is. This a, is a Sandersonism. It's a Sandersonism. It, it it's just a term for it's like say you're say you have a romantic scene with two people walking down the street and and just casually in this and you know and it was and the moon's just coming over the horizon and the flowers smelled nice and there's a gorilla in the phone booth and we got to our car and we drove off. <laughs> so if you were just reading through that, you're like, wait a second, <laughs> there's a gorilla in the phone booth. We should be paying attention <laughs> yeah. to this. Um, so that, anyway, that's where the saying comes from. So for me, as I was reading through, and we read that the main character got a perfect score on the SAT. That's not quite as distracting as passing a gorilla in the phone booth on a moonlit walk. But for me, at least, it was, okay, hold up. <laughs> so earlier, earlier, earlier when I was asking why should I care about this girl in, in specific, this could be easily be one of those reasons, but it doesn't, it doesn't play into anything else in the scene. We don't see any demonstration of, I, I googled this because I was curious, I didn't see any demonstration of I'm one of 600 people in the entire world who got it when I took it that year. Mm -hmm. So We don't know how hard she had to work 
or how that's playing into being in college now or because I feel like that's a relevant piece of information. It's a really, it's a, to me, it's the most interesting detail about the character and we don't hear anything else about it. Well, and like, no, I agree because like, if you're the sort of person that can get a 600, not a 600, if you're one of the 600, (laughs) I imagine that adjusting to college could be interesting in different ways. I mean, she's confused Mm -hmm. about what major she wants, but you know, I would like well, to so it's one of those things where I don't know if it was reflected. Because on the one hand, we do get a conversation which I, as an English major, relate to heavily. Yes. The whole, you know, I'm going to do what I love. Do what I'm going to do. Do I do I do what I love or do I do something that's secure? Are we poor? I think what's I think what's missing from her discussion is I could do anything. I could be a brain surgeon. I could be a rocket scientist, or I can be a writer. Or, or I can do even, all three because or, I got a perfect score on the SAT. Or even I know really well how to study, but I don't have anything and I'm terrified of that. Like to right, have, right, right, right. So yeah. it, it felt like the perfect score is a really interesting detail that just wasn't carried through mm-hmm. the rest of what was going on. Yeah, or I'm a perfectionist and if I don't get this absolutely right this mm-hmm. one time, it's going to have this huge effect on my life. That's a Mm-hmm. attention right there because mm-hmm. we suddenly care about what she cares about. Well, she did mention that you know, she was worried about keeping her grades up and losing their scholarship. So, and we were talking about how the stakes weren't really, they were relatable, but they weren't that high. Well, that's one way to raise the stakes. Well, what happens if she does lose her scholarship? Yeah, we, we, don't, we don't know how bad it is. Does she lose her dream? Does she have to go back and work as a milkmaid? I don't know. <laughs> but does she look like a failure to everyone? Was she? Did she not want to be photographed because... She was afraid that if she did fail, everyone it would be more well-known. Does losing her scholarship mean that mm-hmm. she's going to have to ask mom and dad for money? Or does losing her scholarship mean that she won't be able to pay the mob off anymore and they're going to come for her? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a question that I think is worth answering. So, do we have anything I else? I was very prescriptive. <laughs> I apologize. We are being a little bit prescriptive. But we hope that you look at the submission and really think about your character and what exactly it is that she wants. Do we have anything else? Well, I think that's about okay. it. Okay. Well, then, thank you so much, Erin, for coming on the podcast. It was great to hang out. And thank you. please check out The Trader's Kiss. It is awesome. And for Literary Work in Progress, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Hi, Caitlin here. If you're interested in looking at the submission that was featured in today's podcast, you can find it on our website, literarywip.wixsite.com slash podcast. That's literarywip.wixsite.com slash podcast. If you're interested in submitting your work for us to look at, you can find our submission guidelines on that same website. And we'd really appreciate it if you subscribe to our podcast in iTunes and leave us a rating and comment while you're there because it helps other people to discover our podcast. Thanks and see you next week.